Beloved, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul, having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles, that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may, by your good works which they observe, glorify God in the day of visitation. Now it's been uh, at least two or three weeks since we looked at this chapter in 1 Peter. But if you were here when we looked at verse 9 and 10, you'll remember that Peter is simply reminding the Christians, or he has been reminding these Christians, who they are in Christ. This is how God sees them. He said to them, you are a chosen generation. You are a royal priesthood, a holy nation. You are God's own special people. And He did this. God sees them this way. That you may proclaim the praises of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. Who once were not a people but are now the people of God. Who had not obtained mercy but now have obtained mercy. And that's not just how God sees the Christians that Peter's writing to. That's not just how He sees them. But friends, if you have believed on the Lord Jesus Christ and you are a child of God, that's how He sees you. You, sitting in Simmons Grove Baptist Church this morning, are a holy nation. A special, chosen generation of God. His own special possession. His precious possession. This is all rooted in the gospel of Jesus Christ. We were those who were once in darkness and He has brought us into His marvelous light. We were dead in trespasses and sins, as Paul says in Ephesians 2. We lived after the course of this world, according to the lusts of our flesh, the desires of the flesh and of the mind. We were by nature children of wrath, just like the rest of mankind. But God, who is rich in mercy... Because of His great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in sins, has made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. You are God's child. You belong to Him. You are His prized possession. His own special people. You who had not obtained mercy have now obtained mercy. And I remind you of that because when we move into verse 11 and we start talking about this command that Peter is giving to abstain from fleshly lust, to make war against your flesh, that has to be rooted in the gospel. That has to be rooted in what Jesus has already done for you. Because if you live your life, try to rid yourself of your sin, you're going to make yourself holy in your own strength and in your own power, you will absolutely fail. That's the the pitfall in every religion is trying to make yourself something that you cannot make yourself. You cannot make yourself acceptable to God. You cannot sanctify yourself in your own strength. You are a Christian if you have believed on the Lord Jesus Christ and received His mercy. And only then can you grow in holiness. Only then can you progress in sanctification So now we move into verse 11 and Peter begins to lovingly urge them to make war against the flesh. Take notice of how he addressed them. Beloved. That's sort of an old word. Have you called anyone beloved lately? Try it with your wife sometime. See what she thinks. I may give that a go. 
The word is built on the word agape. You're familiar with that. So we're not talking about the love itself as a noun, but the one who is a recipient of that love. He calls them beloved, dear ones, loved ones. And yes, that's how God sees us. We are His beloved. And that's a joyous thought to think that God would look at sinful humanity in, through that lens. That He would call those who come to Him His beloved. But this wasn't God's word to them. This was Peter's word to them. This is how Peter addressed the church. Now he's about to tell them something hard. He's about to say, abstain from fleshly lust. You're engaged in war for your soul. But he doesn't come to them and say, what on earth are you thinking? Quit doing that stuff. He comes alongside these Christians in the best way he can in a letter. And he says, beloved. And let that be just a word of counsel to Christians. We have a responsibility to each other to stir one another up to love and good works, according to Hebrews. We have a responsibility to hold each other accountable. And even sometimes that means calling out sin that we see in one another's lives. And the right attitude to approach that is one like Peter does in verse 11. To come alongside someone and just say, Beloved, dear ones, loved ones. You won't get very far if you come with the harsh attitude of, I told you so, what on earth were you thinking? But if you come alongside someone and you speak to them in love, with a gentle heart, you might get somewhere. So Peter approaches them, he comes to this part of his letter, and he refers to them simply as his beloved. And he's urging them out of this love, he's pointing them to to who they are in verse 9 and 10, but now he's urging them to action. Who you are affects what you do. In fact, he begs them. I beg you, the new King James says. Just simply means to urge, to implore, to exhort. And then he calls them to make war against the flesh. In his words, abstain from fleshly lusts. Abstain from fleshly lusts. We don't really talk like that. Too much anymore. But really this sort of behavior is nothing new. This is normative for Christian living. This attitude of setting aside, distancing yourself from the things that your flesh desires. Is, all, is to be a normal part of Christian living. Just a couple of examples. First John chapter 2 he said, Do not love the world. Or the things that are in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. So this is normal Christian living. There ought to be a separation. Paul told the Corinthians in Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 7, 1, he says, Therefore, having these promises, beloved, he's approaching it just like Peter. You have these promises. You have this good news of who you are in Christ. I love you. I'm just trying to tell you the truth. Now let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. This is normal Christian living. 
And when he wrote to the Romans in chapter 13, he told them to let us walk properly as in the day, not in revelry and drunkenness, not in lewdness and lust, not in strife and envy, but alternatively, he says, put on the Lord Jesus Christ and listen, make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lust. Words matter. We have to take these things seriously. He says, make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lust. What is it that your flesh desires that is not pleasing to God? And maybe it's not something that is inherently sinful, but the place that it has taken in your life makes it sinful because it comes before God. What is that thing that you are inclined to do, that place you are inclined to go, that relationship you are drawn to that you should not be? Paul says, make no provision for the flesh. That means don't put yourself in the kind of situation where you even could commit that sin. Don't allow yourself to be drawn to it. Don't put it in your path if you can help it. Listen, temptation comes along enough without our help. It's going to happen. We live in a sinful world. It's going to be put in front of you. So Paul says, as much as you can help it, make no provision for the flesh. If your sin is gluttony, just keep certain things out of your house so that you can't eat it. If your sin is pornography, do not put yourself in a situation where you have unfettered access to the internet without supervision. If your sin, if you're drawn towards adultery, don't put yourself in a situation where you're with a person you're attracted to without someone else around. Make absolutely no provision for the flesh. Abstain from fleshly lust. It's an act of the will. You have to fight against it. Now, I don't have a comprehensive or exhaustive list of sins. There are so many. (laughs) But Paul takes a jab at it in Galatians 5. He begins by saying this, Walk in the Spirit... And you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. How do you not fulfill the lust of the flesh? Walk in the Spirit. Abide in Christ. Stay in His Word. Fellowship with Him in prayer. If you realize that you are with Jesus and you're abiding with Him, you're walking in the Spirit, you are far less likely to just dive into sin. Walk in the Spirit, you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. For the flesh lusts against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. There's contention here. He says, these are contrary to one another, so that you do not do the things that you wish. But if you are led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. Now, here are the works of the flesh, he says. Here's his list. Adultery. I would... You know, in just the last few years, people that I've known, I just wouldn't put it past anyone. We all like to think we're immune to these things. I would never do that. I would never step out on my wife or my husband. Some of you very well may be tempted in that area right now. That's the first thing on Paul's list. He says, adultery. This is the lust of the flesh. This is the work of the flesh. The second is very close to it, fornication. That's any sexual activity outside of God's context of marriage. Whether that's with someone who's not your spouse, whether that's looking at something on the screen, whatever it is, abstain from it. 
He says uncleanness. I won't stop on every name on the list. Lewdness. Idolatry. What is it in your life that you put before God? What is the idol that you worship? You do worship something or someone. Who or what is it? What's coming before God? Sorcery. I hope we don't have any of that going on here today. Hatred. That's far more likely. Who is it in your life that you just cannot stand to even think of them? It ruins your day when you see them. These are the lusts of the flesh. Contentions. Jealousies. This one hits home. Outbursts of wrath. You know your pastor can have a temper sometimes. These are the lusts of the flesh. Selfish ambitions. Again, these are things that in themselves, that you might have a desire that's not inherently sinful, but your selfish ambition, you putting that before God, you pursuing that above all else, makes it sinful. It's all about your attitude towards God. Dissensions, heresies, envy, murders, drunkenness, revelries. And just in case he missed anything, he says, and the like. Of which I tell you beforehand, just as I also told you in time past, that those who make practice of such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. These are the lusts of the flesh. Peter says, abstain from them. Push them away. Run away. Go the other direction as fast as you can. We looked at Matthew 16 just last week. Jesus said, if anyone would follow me, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself. Take up his cross and follow me. I say all that to say and reference all these passages just to say that abstaining from fleshly lust, making war against your flesh is normal Christian living. Are you fighting? So then, let's ask the question, why? Why should we do this? Why should we go to war with our flesh? Why should you take up arms and march into battle against your fleshly desires? Let me give you three things I see in the text. Number one, this world is not your home. This world is not your home. Peter says, beloved, I beg you as what? Sojourners and pilgrims. Sojourners and pilgrims. Sojourner is simply a foreigner. We might say an alien. It's someone who lives in another country. Maybe they're here, but this isn't where they're from, and it's not where they plan on staying. This world is not our home. This is not our country. Our citizenship is in heaven. We are citizens of God's kingdom. We are here. We live in this world. Not much we can do about that. But this world is not our home. He calls him a pilgrim. Pilgrim just means a a temporary resident. A visitor who intends to only have a brief stay. You think about your time here in the world. You think maybe you live 70 or 80 or if you're fortunate and healthy, 90 or 100 years. What is that? 
in comparison to eternity. So what if you live to 120? Your soul will live somewhere else forever. And if you're a Christian, that's in the kingdom of God. You see, as a Christian, while we're in the world, our lives, your life, should demonstrate a level of detachment. We don't belong here. Why do we hold so tightly to what we have here? Our stuff, our land, our position, what people think of us. We hold these things so dearly. But this world is not our home. Why would you go after the lust of the flesh? Why would you fulfill your sinful desires when this life is going to be over in 70 or 80 years anyway? And then you have eternity with God. Why should you abstain from fleshly lust? Because ultimately, this life isn't it. In the end, what you do here won't amount to what I used to hear called a hill of beans. There's two ditches. On each side, of, There's one on each side of the road, right? When we think about this. We've got two options here that are wrong. And one is to completely withdraw from the world. You know, this world is not our home. We're just going to be like the monks, start a monastery. We're going to hang out with our Christian friends. You might not actually move to a monastery, but you live that way. All the people you know are Christians. All the people you do business with are Christians. You try your best to avoid having any contact with the outside world as much as possible. That's tempting for some of us. COVID helped us with that. It let us satisfy that lust. To pull away, to not have anything to do with that part of the world. That's a ditch. We can't do that. Can't totally detach. Can't pull out of society. Now the other ditch is to say, well, I'm going to make a difference. Activism is the other ditch. If we can just get the right people in office, if we can just get in control of the right organizations, the right institutions, if we can get this right level of influence, we can really change things. We can make this world what it ought to be. No, you can't. This world is tainted by sin and Christians ought to know that no human government, no human institution, no man will ever bring righteousness and judgment on the earth till Jesus comes. So we've got to avoid both of those ditches. You can't pull out entirely, but you can't put all your eggs in the basket of activism. Where we're supposed to be is somewhere in the middle. We still engage with the world. Yes, we try to be a positive influence in society. Yes, we pray. Yes, we share the gospel because that's the only thing that really can change people. But we don't give ourselves entirely to activism in this world. This world isn't our home. Don't go after the lust of the flesh. It's not worth it. This life will be over and it won't even matter anymore. Live for the one that you're going to live with for eternity. While you're here. This is why we make war with the flesh. This is why we abstain from fleshly lust. This life isn't what ultimately matters. Fleshly pleasures are temporary. Your life with God, however, is eternal. Number two. Not to sound too serious, but your soul is at stake. Maybe I do mean to sound serious. Your soul is at stake. 
he says abstain from fleshly lusts, but it's fleshly lusts that war against the soul. You see, fleshly lusts don't just affect the flesh. We like to think that way. What I do with my body, what I do when I engage in sin, it doesn't affect anything. It's my choice. I can do whatever I want. It's just affecting me. And even if it's true that maybe in the moment you're not impacting anyone else around you, friend, it certainly has an impact on your soul. Satan isn't attacking you with fleshly lusts to destroy your flesh. He's coming to you and fighting against you with fleshly lusts because he wants your soul. Paul said this in 1 Corinthians 6. He said, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? We read that in Romans 6, the beginning of the service. When we become Christians, we die with Christ. We are united with Christ in His death. Sometimes as kids, we heard it said that Jesus comes to live in your heart. If you are a Christian and you are indwelt by the Holy Spirit, Christ is literally with you. All the time, united with you. So Paul says, shall I take the members of Christ and make them members of a harlot? He's talking to the context in Corinthians. Some of these folks apparently thought it was okay to go out and hire a prostitute. He says, no, you're united with Christ. Would you, as a member of Christ's body, join Christ to a prostitute? Certainly not. He says, flee sexual immorality. Every sin that a man does is outside the body, but he who commits sexual immorality sins against his own body. Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit in you? Whom you have from God, and you are not your own. You were bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and your spirit, which are God's. Think about this next time you are tempted to sin. If you are a Christian and the Holy Spirit is within you, if God is with you, wherever you go, you're taking Him with you. Whatever sin you take part in, you are taking part in it and Christ is with you. You are acting as a member of His body. When you do that thing, go to that place, look at that thing. Whatever it is, you are united with Christ. You would not take Christ to that place. You would not want Jesus with you doing that thing. The analogy of war is not an overstatement. It's not an exaggeration. We have a, we've had a lot of veterans in our church over the years. Some of you even now can... Tell me either from what you've seen with your own eyes or what people close to you have seen. And they came back to tell the, the horrors of war. And we even think about what's going on in the world right now in, in, in Ukraine. And when I'm talking about in the church, Christians are to be making war. You might say, that's taken a little too far. I mean, war is serious. You know, am I, am I really overstating it when I say that? I just want to be clear, I'm not. Even more serious than any war any of you have ever seen, even more serious than a war that's going on in, in, in the world right now is the war that's going on for your soul. 
There is no war more important than the war that is waged on your soul. Why? Because the effects of that war last for eternity. Romans 8, Paul said, Therefore, brethren, we are debtors not to the flesh. To live according to the flesh. Listen, this is how serious it is. Paul says, For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, kill it, you will live. If you live according to the flesh, if you fulfill your own desires, if you follow after the lusts of the the flesh, the desires of the mind, whatever you want, you just go after it and you don't make any stand against your sin, you will die. Why? Because you're simply proving that you are not a child of God. You give evidence that you do not belong to Him. If you constantly give in to temptation without any fight against it, You have no reason to have any assurance that you're a Christian. Christians fight against their sin. Christians march into battle against the lusts of the flesh. Christians make war against sin. You will still sin. I don't want to discourage you too much. You will still fall. But with the help of the Holy Spirit, you will fight and you will keep on fighting. I read some verses from Galatians 5 earlier. I'll reference just one verse again. He says, for the lust of the flesh or for the flesh lusts against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary to one another. So that you do not do the things that you wish. You are engaged in battle if you're a Christian. You have the the Holy Spirit within you and your, your new nature in Christ that's telling you what is right. You know what to do. And then you have that old man, that old fleshly desire flare up every so often. And sometimes you're amazed at how sinful you still can be after all this time. But it's a war. You can't stop. I kind of had hope at one time that maybe when I got older, certain sins would be easier not to commit or maybe there wouldn't be as much temptation. But the more I talk to older Christians, apparently it gets worse, not better. The fight never ends in this life. You have to fight. You must fight if you belong to God. He said down in verse 24 of Galatians 5 that those who are Christ's have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. You are dead to sin if you're a Christian. You are no longer a slave to it. You have the help of God. You are dead with Jesus on the cross. And just as He raised to new life, so you have been raised to new life. You must make war against sin because your very soul is at stake. If you don't fight You give evidence that you may not be a child of God. And third, the souls of unbelievers are at stake. He said in verse 12, having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles. So we're we're pushing away one thing and we're clinging to another. 
We're fighting against our sin and we're conducting ourselves honorably. And in the next few weeks, we'll look more specifically what he's talking about. But he says to do it among the Gentiles. Now, his audience is primarily Jewish, but this applies to all Christians. To unbelievers in the world, conduct yourselves in an honorable way among them. Why? That when they speak against you as evildoers, and they certainly were, these churches in Asia Minor, Christians were hated. People brought witness and testimony against them daily. But Peter says that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may, by your good works which they observe, glorify God in the day of visitation. I am 100% a proponent of gospel proclamation. People must hear the gospel in order to become Christians. You can't just live a good life in front of people and that be enough to convince them of, of, of their sin and judgment to come and righteousness in Jesus. They won't get that just by looking at your life. You must share the gospel. However, your conduct must be honorable as well. Just as your actions alone won't save anyone, your words that aren't backed up by a lifestyle of holiness are useless. If you preach a gospel of a holy God who hates sin and loves righteousness and offers mercy, but you're living a life of sin unchanged and not showing mercy to people around you, guess what? They have absolutely no reason to believe it. He says, conduct yourselves honorably among the Gentiles that when they speak against you of evildoers, that by seeing your good works... They may glorify God. Jesus said the same thing in the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 5, you're the salt of the earth, but if salt loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It's good for nothing then but to be thrown out and trampled on in the streets. You are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand. And it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light so shine among men that they may see your good works. And glorify God who is in heaven. You can live your life in such a way as you're sharing the gospel and living a holy life. You can live your life in such a way that someone who once spoke against you as an evildoer can be transformed into a fellow believer who glorifies God with their life. That's incredible. Let me give you one example. We read it this last Wednesday night. In the book of Acts, you remember Stephen. Over and over again, Luke describes Stephen as a man who is full of the Holy Spirit. He lived a holy life that glorified God and pointed other people to Him. And he preached the gospel. And he, they hated him for it. And he became the first martyr in the Christian church. They dragged him out of the city and they stoned him. And the Bible says that they, the men who stoned them laid their coats at the feet of a man named Saul. And it's not three chapters later in Acts. When this man Saul, who has witnessed a faithful Christian full of the Holy Spirit, heard his message preached, took part in his stoning... Becomes 
possibly the greatest missionary and God glorifier in the history of the Christian church. Now, Stephen didn't live to see it. But even in Stephen's death, God was at work. You live your lives honorably, nobly, in such a way that those who speak against you now may see your good works. And it just may be that God uses that to bring them to salvation and they too will glorify God. In conclusion, I'll just say this. War with the flesh is war for the soul. War with the flesh is war for your soul. Not just yours, but for the souls of those around you. Make war against your sin. Fight against it. Abstain from fleshly lust. Live honorably. Because this world isn't your home. You don't belong here. If you don't fit in, good. You shouldn't. Your own soul's at stake. You must fight against your sin. But also the souls of those around you. Those who observe your life. Their souls are at stake. Who do you know who's an unbeliever? Who is someone you would love to see the Lord save? Who's someone you're praying for? Live a holy life, not just for God's sake and for yours, but do it also for theirs. That they may see your good works and glorify God when He visits them. Would you stand as we pray? Father, thank You for Your Word. Thank You for Jesus who died for us. We can't sanctify ourselves. We can't be made holy in our own strength, Lord. So we just depend on You. The work of the Holy Spirit through the cross of Jesus. But even as we depend on You, Lord, give us the will and the strength to take action and take the steps necessary to make war against our flesh. Our very souls are at stake and the souls of the lost around us. Do Your work in our hearts, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.